Praise God. Thanks, guys. It's a great honor and a privilege to have our good friend, Andrew Masters. He's down from a place called Lisburn, just outside Belfast. Andrew is the founding pastor and senior pastor of uh, Lagan Valley Vineyard Church. Have I got it right there? That's it. We give him a big round of applause. Welcome, Andrew. So Andrew's going to preach from the Word of God and maybe minister a little bit at the end of it as well. Are you up for that? Yeah. You've got to say it louder. He's from the north. Yeah. Praise God. Over to you, Andrew. Good evening. It is wonderful to be with you. I feel like I'm in trouble just a little bit. So um, there are two people really in my life that call me Andrew, now three. My mom and my wife and Tom. And uh, most people know me as Andy. And uh, so uh, please feel free um, to call me Andy. Um, I always feel like if I get Andrew, I am in trouble. So I am in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or I'm about to be in trouble. It's so, it is wonderful to be with you. I apologize. I seem to have brought some northern weather with me. Um, I bring uh, you greetings from my wife, Dana, and uh, we have three kids. Uh, we have an eight-year-old daughter, and we have uh, twin terrorists who are six. And um, they, they, they're trying to do everything they can to destroy our house and uh, yeah, keep us laughing in the midst of it all. Um, Just a little bit of introduction, maybe help you understand what we're kind of dealing with on a day-to-day kind of basis. I think it was a couple of months ago, I was putting the twins in the car uh, before we headed over to church. And one of the boys said, Dad, does Jesus live in heaven? And I said, well, uh, kind of, son, Jesus kind of lives everywhere. But the really important thing is, and I kind of got in his face a little bit and poked him in the chest. I said, the really important thing you need to know is that Jesus can actually live in there. But you have to ask him. And uh, he didn't skip a beat. He went, Jesus, would you please? And I said, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, it's a bit more involved than that. See, son, you have to understand that if you ask Jesus to come and live in your life, you're actually asking Jesus to be the boss of your life. And he said, that's all right, Jesus, you can stay in heaven. (laughs) True story. Pray for us as we try to parent our uh, little rascals and lead them towards uh, Jesus it is wonderful uh, to be with you. I want to, um, I want to teach from Matthew chapter four uh, tonight. I think uh, the passage will uh, hopefully come up on the screen. Matthew four, um, verse twelve through to seventeen. Let me read this for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in. Verse twelve says, "Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee." Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that there, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region And shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we humbly pray, come Holy Spirit. Come and breathe on this ancient text and speak to us, we pray. Change our lives. We want to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you ever uh, notice the detail that's often in the scriptures that if you're anything like me, you can just so easily seem to skim over or skip past it. It sometimes doesn't leap off the page like it's important. The very first part of this text says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. I wonder what you normally do with that part of the text. For me, usually swiftly move on. There's loads and absolutely loads going on in these few short verses. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, you'll know that just two chapters previous, John is wandering the wilderness in camel hair and eating locusts and honey. He's a bit of a crazy man and he's prophesying and proclaiming that Things are about to change. Something is about to happen. And crowds are gathering around him. And eventually Jesus appears. And he's baptizing people. And he baptizes Jesus. And the result of all of this commotion and stirring is that John himself gets thrown in prison. His prophetic rants in the wilderness have caught the attention of those who have a vested interest in keeping the status quo and things not being too shaken up and they've grabbed John and they've thrown him in jail. The text goes on to talk about that Jesus has moved house. He's left Nazareth. He's moved to a city called Capernaum. Capernaum was a much more significant city, almost four times the size. Matthew wants to make sure here for those that are reading this text that they get that something significant is going on. It's not just that Jesus has decided his public ministry has begun and he needs to leave his hovel in Nazareth and move to a palace in Capernaum. He needs to study in a library and places he can receive guests. That's not really what's going on. Capernaum was specific. The prophet Isaiah spoke about it, that the people there would see a great light. That something would come from that place that would change everything else. I don't know if you have this expression down here, but whenever my kids are being particularly rascally, in the middle of the night, often they'll come in to us. And when there's something going on, they'll come in and they'll turn the big light on. Do you know what I mean by the big light? You know that moment when, when the big light's been off and someone turns the big light on? I mean, it feels almost like what I imagine death might feel like. You know, you have that like, what is happening here? That kind of moment that I'm experiencing right now, it's dazzling, it's disorientating, it's incredibly disruptive. And your natural impulse when someone turns the big light on is to reach for the switch and turn it off again. This is sometimes where I think we can go slightly wrong when we are looking for the voice of God in our lives. 
Sometimes we can mistakenly think that if God was to show up and really speak in our lives, it would feel like, like a masseuse or an afternoon at the spa. You know, it would feel gentle and easy and so peaceful. Now, there's no doubt that God's presence and his voice often comforts us. But in my experience... God's voice in my life feels much more like someone's just turned the big light on. Often it can feel incredibly disorientating, utterly unexpected, and it can often take a moment for us to gather ourselves and figure out what's actually going on. Often when the big light comes on, we notice things that we don't quite see when the big light's off. And one of the things, for those of us who are trying to follow Jesus and be attentive to God's voice in our lives, one of the things we've got to be really careful and pay attention to not do is not try and turn the big light off whenever it comes on. But to be able to sit or stand in the disorientating tension of, God, what are you doing? What are you saying? How, How do I... Pay attention to the things that you're doing and the things that you're saying. This is exactly what's happening to the people around Jesus. The big light has come on and it is incredibly disorientating. It's incredibly disruptive. And all sorts of different kinds of people have all sorts of different kinds of reactions. Some of them are able to sit and stand in the tension of the dazzling big light. Some run from it and some try to turn it off. I wonder how you respond to the big light in your life. When God turns the big light on, what do you do? When his voice seems disruptive and disorientating even, what do you do? It's important for us to learn how to receive what he says even when it is disruptive challenging and disorientating and of course what happens is if we can leave the light on our eyes begin to adjust and of course then we begin to see things so much more clearly which really is the point of discipleship that we would learn to see life and the world clearly and we need light for that. I'm going to talk about that more in a little bit. Verse 17, then, it's the beginning of the rest of the story. Really, this part of Matthew's gospel is the end of the beginning. Everything that's come before has been kind of leading us up to this point where Jesus will begin to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. It's the beginning of the rest of the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, but it's the beginning of the rest of the story of the disciples that would follow him. It's the beginning of the rest of the story of the apostles that would start the early church, and it's the beginning of the rest of the story of the church, and it's the beginning of the rest of our story right up to this moment in this year, this statement from that time on, Jesus began to preach, 
repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. On this sentence, everything changes. On this sentence, the world is never the same again. Another way of understanding that verse is from that time on, Jesus began his proclamation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is arriving. His proclamation, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is arriving. That word heaven, uh, some of the other gospel writers use the word God. They're interchangeable. It's got more to do with the audience that Matthew was originally writing to. You can interchange kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. They mean exactly the same thing. The rest of the story is pretty simple. Jesus proclaims this message and demonstrates, demonstrates its reality for all of those around him to see. And then he teaches his followers how to live into that reality and do the same thing. Proclaim and demonstrate the present reality of the kingdom of God. We had an intern uh, come from New York and spend some time with us a few years ago. And uh, we were sitting having dinner one night and she said, Andy, can I, can I ask you a really stupid question? And I said, well, ask the question and we can decide together if it's stupid. And um, she, she said, I've been, uh, I've been in church my whole life. I think she was 28 or 29. She said, I've been in church my whole life. And I've never heard people talk about the kingdom, ever. And you guys seem to talk about this thing, the kingdom, all the time. You talk about the kingdom of God. Every time you preach, you talk about the kingdom of God. And when we do our discipleship classes, we talk about the kingdom of God. She says, I keep hearing you guys talk about the kingdom of God. And I've been a Christian for nearly 30 years, and nobody's ever talked to me about the kingdom of God. She said, my stupid question is, what is the kingdom of God? I said, Alicia, that's not a stupid question. That's about the... Most important question in the world. Second to who is Jesus? Maybe the most important question we can ask. What is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? <coughs> I wonder, just to answer it quietly in your own head at the minute. What way would you answer that question? Where would you go with that? How would you tell somebody else what the kingdom of God is. If this is what Jesus proclaimed, and this is what Jesus taught those who followed him to proclaim, what actually is it? See, one of the things that we have to be a little bit careful as Christians is that we don't uh, just use language that we don't understand. It happens in the church quite often. <coughs> Tom, could you give me some water, please? Um, we have to be careful that we don't use language that we don't understand. What is... The kingdom of God. We have a primary school definition. It's a user-friendly definition. It's certainly not a perfect definition that we use in our church, but it's the most helpful that we've been able to come up with. That the kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. The kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. That was Jesus' message. Repent, because the desires of God are about to come alive all around you. And then if you follow to the end of Matthew 4, what you'll actually see is Jesus go and do that. He embodies that. He goes and he heals the sick, and he casts out demons. He sets people free. Read through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. You'll see all sorts of stuff going on as he 
speaks to and challenges systems of oppression and injustice. And all of that is Jesus going, look, these are what the desires of God are like. That's what he's doing. Thank you, my friend. (laughs) The kingdom is the place where what God wants happens. Where what God wants happens. And just in case you think it's kind of limited just to Jesus, go and read the book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 8, uh, Luke records that Jesus is appearing to the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Acts 28 verse 31, I think Paul's under house arrest in Rome. It's the very last verse of the book of Acts. And it says, under house arrest in Rome, he receives gladly all those who come to him, And he teaches them about Jesus and proclaims the kingdom of God without hindrance and with all boldness. It is no accident that Luke begins and ends the book of Acts with this reference to the kingdom of God. Of course, the people that are listening to this when Jesus is saying it don't need that explanation. They are so familiar with the idea of kingdoms and kingdom movements. You see, the people living in Israel are desperate for a deliverer. They're longing for a revolution. And this is exactly that. The kingdom of heaven arriving wasn't some mystical or theological concept to those listening to Jesus. What he was talking about was a longed for political and national reality. For the previous 90 years, those listening to Jesus have been living under Roman occupation. The Roman kingdom has literally been occupying their land by force. The people listening to Jesus know how kingdoms work. Namely, that your life is determined by the whims of the king of the particular kingdom where you live. That the desires of the particular king of the kingdom where you live affects every single part of your life. And the people of Israel are longing, desperate, crying out for God to come and deliver them and rule them himself. That he would come and establish his kingdom for them on earth. That's what he longs for. So when Jesus begins to announce, I feel like I should start dancing. That's okay, I don't mind. Don't worry, please don't worry. Um, So when Jesus begins to announce, repent, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is arriving, this wasn't heard as a spiritual ideal. It was heard as a real, earthly, bodily cry of revolution. He was saying, get ready. A new authority that you have longed for that will bring you life is arriving. And that's really what he meant when he said, repent. Repent because this new kingdom is about to establish itself in your midst. I wonder, how does the word repentance make you feel? I don't know what it's like down here. 
back where I'm from, we nail that word to trees. And we like paint it on the side of barns still. And it has this kind of slightly intimidating effect on people. Like when you say the word repent to people in the north, they kind of twitch a bit. You know, we, we've, we've heard this word an awful lot and it's got lots of shame attached to it. That we should feel really, really bad and, you know, we, we need to sort our lives out and we need to repent. And it's really important that we realize repentance has much more to do with what we're doing with our lives than it does how we feel about them. Repentance, biblically anyway, has way more to do with what you're doing with your life than it does with how you feel about your life. Many of us, uh, this is what repentance looks like. We make a mistake. Uh, we feel bad. We repent. God forgives us. And we feel better. And often what happens is the next day or the next week, maybe if you're super holy the next month, you make the same mistake and you feel bad. And then you repent and God forgives you. And you know, But nothing actually changes The reason nothing changes is because we've confused apologies with repentance. Repentance is not an apology. Sure, it helps to feel sorry, of course. But they're not, they are not the same thing. The word repent means to change direction. So I was going this way, I repent, I am now going this way. Notice, I can apologize all day, every day and never change. My wife would say, welcome to marriage. (laughs) I'll never forget the moment. It was a weaker moment in my wife's life. (laughs) And uh, she she came into the kitchen. And I have, we've been married for 11 years. And um, I have this thing, I don't know why, it's awful. Uh, Pray for me, please. But I just can't seem to remember to put, my coffee mug in the sink. I know. I, I know. So, so one day, um, this is a couple of years ago, I guess it had been a pretty bad week, and the coffee mug was sitting over by the sofa, and uh, she came in, and she accidentally kicked the mug over, and it poured coffee everywhere, and it was a mug that she particularly liked, and it broke, and she's really cross, and she looked at me, and she's like, why can you not just put the mug when you're finished with it in the sink? I said, I'm really, really sorry. And she said, I don't care about your sorry. Change your behavior. Now, I'm not saying God's like that. (laughs) But it is important that we understand when Jesus talks about repentance, he's not talking about apologies. This is why lots of us get stuck in habits of sin. Because we're apologizing. We're not repenting. We need to learn how to change direction. If your repentance doesn't cause you to change, it's not really repentance at all. You see, we can sometimes get stuck thinking our lives are really all about how we're feeling. And that's not really a helpful way to do life. I am absolutely 100% in favor of being connected to your emotions and what you're feeling 
and all of that sort of stuff. But there's more going on in our lives than simply or should be than simply what we are feeling. I was with a good friend. I did his wedding uh, about 18 months ago and uh, we were out a couple weeks ago and I said, hey, how's, how's things at home? And uh, he said, I've just had like an epiphany. And I said, really, what was, what was your epiphany? And he said, love is about doing things when you don't feel like it. <laughs> Dana and I did this particular couple's marriage preparation. I, I felt like resigning there and then. That's more or less all we talked about for six weeks. It just took him 18 months of marriage to figure it out. Now, to be fair, he's ahead of most men, right? Takes most of us a bit longer than 18 months. Anyway, repentance. We have to understand repentance is way more about what we do than how we feel. It has got way more to do with what we do than how we feel. And Jesus calls people to repentance Because he believed that they were headed in the wrong direction. He could see it. He knew what they were longing for. And he knew what they were longing for was not consistent, did not line up with the things that God wanted. And he's saying the kingdom is coming. The desires of God, the place where what God wants is about to happen. Is your life living in that direction? Do they line up? The people listening to Jesus were consumed with ideas of revolution that looked like every other kind of revolution around them. They wanted a military leader to rise up and take power by force. They wanted to overthrow violence with violence, to fight darkness with darkness. But the people of God and Jesus himself were always supposed to deal with darkness by being light, by being different. Many of Jesus' contemporaries were eager to just get on with the fight, to arm themselves and confront the Romans and throw out this foreign oppressor. And Jesus' message of repentance is not so much that they should feel sorry about personal, private sin. Of course we should, but that's not what he was talking about here. The point is Jesus was looking at their lives and saying, you're headed in the wrong direction. And the kingdom is arriving. And you're going to miss it if you keep heading that way. We think we can be formed in the ways of righteousness and peace And joy whilst keeping our lives firmly rooted in a way of doing life that's ruled by the natural, physical, and explainable world around us. You see, there is a clash. Let me ask you this question. Does the natural inform how you see the spiritual or does the spiritual inform how you see the natural? Does what's going on around your life determine what you think's going on within your life with God? Or does what's going on within your life with God inform how you are engaging in the external life of the world and the physical and all of those kinds of things? For Jesus and those who followed him, spiritual reality informed completely how they engaged with the world around them. 
That was the school of discipleship that he invited them all into. Come and let me show you what life looks like when the big light gets turned on. And help you see things properly. Jesus immersed those who followed him in a way of life that taught them to engage with the things that God sees and says as most important in their lives. That's what's going on when Jesus is sleeping in storms and standing on seas and healing illness and driving out demons. That's what's happening whenever you notice those moments where Jesus chastises his followers saying, where is your faith? What happened there? And it's quite obvious what happened in all of those kind of moments is that those who are following Jesus allowed the natural to take over the spiritual in their lives. They look at waves And the effect of the wind and they panic while Jesus sleeps. And he gets up and says, shut up wind, be quiet, waves. And then looks at the disciples and goes, what's wrong with you guys? Haven't I taught you how to see correctly? Does the spiritual inform what's going on around you? Or does what's going on around you inform how you relate to God? Such an important thing for us to see. Of course, the pinnacle of this moment is when Jesus himself is hanging on the cross. The natural sees humiliating execution and defeat. And the spiritual sees the most glorious and humble victory over death itself. Let me ask you a question. Tom provoked you earlier around this. When you look at Cork, what do you see? When you look at the place that you work, what do you see? When you look at your family, what do you see? Maybe you need to repent. Now, don't go to that like, oh, yeah, I'm terrible. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not about shame or guilt or you're getting it wrong. It's about changing direction. It's about learning how to see what he sees. And Jesus is saying that there is a good future that is arriving. Is your life in line with that? Repentance is learning To align our lives with the good God future that we see arriving. That's what Jesus is saying here. The first nine years of our marriage, we spent fixing up a fairly old house. It was about 110 years old. And uh, two Easter's ago, we finished it. April 2018. First week of April, we finished the house. We finally got a guest room so that when people came, they didn't have to sleep in a pull-out sofa bed. And uh, about two weeks after we finished the carpet in the whole house, we felt like God started to speak to us about moving. It was like someone turned the big light on. Utterly disorientated. About a week after that, we were standing in a field in the foothills of the Mourn Mountains with a really good friend talking about buying this field. And I looked at my friend Mark and I said, Mark, do you think we've lost our mind? And with big tears in his eyes, he said, Andy, I think this is Jesus. 
Repentance is about learning how to change direction and align our lives with the things that God is doing. And the reality is often our lives are headed in good directions and we're involved in good things. And we think repentance is only ever about bad stuff. That we should repent of sin and repent of, you know, getting things wrong or repent of missing an opportunity or something like that. But sometimes repentance is about us changing direction from a good thing to engage in a God thing. And that can feel like the big light has just got turned on. The people listening to Jesus weren't living in the direction of God's kingdom. Hence, Jesus calls them to change direction. To reject fighting and killing is a way to end fighting and killing. Jesus is calling a nation away from the cliff edge of violent revolution and back to an embrace of God's works done in God's ways. That's what he's doing. To embrace light over darkness, peace, healing, and forgiveness. What happens, as Anti Wright says, when the supposed light bearers insist on darkness? We get darkness. If the peace people insist on war, then war they shall have. If the people called to bring God's love and forgiveness into the world insist on hatred and harboring bitterness, then hatred and bitterness we shall have. The question that faces all of us when we think about what Jesus is doing in this text, and we think about what God is doing in our lives, is are we working to extend God's kingdom with him, or are we standing in its way? Are we moving in the same direction of God's kingdom? Do you see it? It's it's interesting People who don't yet follow Jesus can see God in their past. I love that moment. I get an opportunity to do it often with people who are discovering God and Jesus and faith for the first time. And they'll often say to me, there's this moment in in my childhood or a moment when I was a teenager or I was in my 20s and, and God intervened in my life. I can see it now. People who don't yet follow Jesus can see God in their past. The immature believer is learning how to see God in their present, to notice, sense the activity of Jesus all around them. But maturity in Christ is us learning to see God in our future and learning how to align our lives with that future that's moving towards us. That is what Jesus is calling those listening to him to. Something is coming Is your life going to go with it or get in the way of it? How many of us are ready for the big light to get turned on? How many of us need to change direction to repent, realign our lives with the good future that's moving towards us? How many of us are ready to join in with Jesus, which is his invitation to us all the time, to join him in showing people what the desires of God look like here on earth as we do the work of reconciliation and forgiveness and justice and compassion and evangelism as we demonstrate the desires of God and Cork City gets to say that the kingdom of God surely has arrived here. 
Sophia, why don't you come on up? I'd love us to respond tonight. I'd love us to, um, maybe for some of us, is a moment where the big light gets turned on. That'd be awesome. Please don't be alarmed if that feels disruptive or disorientating. Maybe for some of you tonight, you know this is a repentance moment. And it's not that actually you're involved in all sorts of nonsense or bad things. You just know that the Lord's been whispering to you about a better thing. And tonight's a moment to lay down that good thing to step into that better thing. Or maybe for some of you, it's a moment just where you need freshly filled with courage to join in with what Jesus is doing all around you. So if you're able, will you stand? The band are going to just play quietly for a minute. I'm going to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to come. We're just going to wait together for a moment, see what happens. And I'll, uh, I'll lead us maybe as we respond. So if you're comfortable, you close your eyes. Maybe just lift your hands out in front of you. We do this with our kids all the time. It's, there's nothing magical in this. It's just a physical embodiment, a posture of what's going on deeper in our spirits, our souls. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters around this room. Lord, would you turn the big light on? our awareness of your presence right now across this room. Lord, we're hungry for you. We need you. Come, God, we pray. as we began this evening that there are some of you tonight and um, I want to communicate this gently and with lots of compassion but I just sense maybe that there are some of you in the room tonight that you've been you've been stuck in a season of grief and that tonight is a time to set that down to change direction and so I'm not going to get you to, to lift your hand up or anything like that but if that if that resonates with you would you just gently place your hand on your heart I'd love to pray for you Father thank you that you say you're a God who sees that you see our hidden tears you see our broken hearts
Lord, we never want to forget those that we love. But we do want to move forward with you. So come, Holy Spirit. Release us, I pray. guys to lead us um, I'll jump off this, the stage and uh, if I can pray for you I'd love to um, I'll be just floating around over here come and grab me and uh, I'm not driving home tonight so I'm in no hurry um, I'd love to I'd love to pray with you as the band uh, lead us let's continue to respond to what the Lord's saying and doing as the band lead us and uh, if I can pray I'd love to